0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope that everybody is having a great Mother's Day. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at BellFlight.com. U.S. debt default worries grow worldwide as Washington balks on a deal. Britain sends its most potent conventional weapon to Ukraine, the Storm Shadow Precision Cruise Missile, as Russia seeds ground, and Kiev prepares uh, its counteroffensive. Rheinmetall partners with Ukraine's leading defense company on armored vehicles. Germany buys 60 Boeing CH-47F helicopters for $8.5 billion dollars but the company's T7 Red Hawk trainer in partnership with Saab will be about three years behind schedule for the United States Air Force. Giant orders from NetJets and potentially from Turkish Airlines. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Ablafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Everybody, welcome back to the program and happy Mother's Day.
1: Thanks, Vargo. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you very much, indeed, Vargo, as always.
2: Yeah, great to be on, Vago. Thanks.
0: Thank you uh, indeed. Would not be a weekend uh, without it. And I hope uh, all the mothers in your family are having a great day, uh, as well as to our audience. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off, right? Uh, You did a a great piece of research on investment outlays uh, being at an all-time high. This is coming as debt default worries are growing uh, worldwide as the clock winds down. Janet Yellen, uh, the US Treasury Secretary, has sort of said like June 1 is about the time when we run out of money because we've been in extraordinary measures now for about six months, uh, and folks are shifting their investment portfolios as well. What's driving investment in the Defense and Aerospace Group, and what does it mean?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. If you look back on the week, the S&P was essentially flat. It was down about 29 basis points, down a smidge. Uh, Boeing was up about a percent. Uh, Raytheon was down about half a percent. And then if you look at the, the broader defense names, they were down about anywhere from a percent to two percent. Um, the real winner on the week was Embraer, uh, we'll talk about that in a bit, I guess uh, was up almost eight percent, most of that on Friday. Uh, Textron was down uh, almost five percent. Spirit Aerosystems was down another four percent this week after being down almost 20 percent last week uh, after kind of a really really bad quarter. Uh, and, and it's interesting, you know you know what was up when you look in the broader market, Amazon was up almost five percent. When you talk to you know, kind of active traders uh, right now, you're seeing some rotation out of uh, industrials into uh, the tech, if you will, on expectations that rates have probably peaked or might start coming down. That arguably is good for the tech sector. And, and you're seeing a little bit of that of that going on. Um, the 10-year was pretty steady at about uh, 3.5, 3.4, uh, 3 so just kind of sitting there right where it's been for a little while, the VIX at 17, oil in the 70s, WTI 70, Brent 74. Um, and so, you know, it's 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 kind of, that's where the market is. We're right. starting to feel field more questions from investors on, well, what happens if, um, you know, the debt ceiling agreement doesn't happen. What's that mean for the sector? And, and and if you look at, there's some, you know, points that people have been talking to. Uh, there's the, you know, credit default swap um, numbers. And, and basically all that is, is, you know, what you would pay on a notional amount of debt. So right. right now to insure US debt, uh, it's about 76 basis points. So if you want to insure a million dollars of debt, you just, you know, multiply it by 76 basis points. And that's what you would pay to do that. And then if you kind of look across the world, you know, kind of where is, you know, where is uh, the, the U.S. compared to other places? Um, 76 for the U.S. is, is, is high. Um, we're usually kind of in the mid-teens. Um, Europe right now, the U.K. is 24. France is 31. Sweden 16. Norway is 15. What's, I think, pretty interesting, China's in the mid-70s too. So right now the cost to ensure our debt and China's debt is about the same. And then, if you go back to uh, the last time we um, were dealing with the debt ceiling negotiation, um, uh, CDS for insuring U.S. debt was uh, in in the mid '60s. You know, just kind of, you know, so we're a little bit higher than then, but not a heck of a lot higher. Um, so we'll see where it goes. But um, I think the important point here is when you when you look at that that cost, what's it mean? If you translate that into a probability of default, um, typically the probability of US default is pretty darn close to zero. Um, now it's about a about a little over a percent. So, you know, still close to zero,
0: but not kind of like dead on zero. And that's that's kind of where uh- we're at again, I think it's kind of interesting where we are now and where we were then, and how on earth the u s dollar uh, you know becomes equated to to Chinas sort of um, uh, staggering in its impact. um even though as as uh, you uh, noted, right, f- folks are getting the sense the Fed might not do another rate rise because inflation is slowing and uh, although you know jobs numbers are a little bit positive uh, positive. I think it's absurd that we waited this long in order for us to gear in and to try to do it. And the way that we try to do it is a rather blunt economic tool. Sorry to criticize people in the dismal science on this. We have to call it, you know, like you have to start unemploying people in order for you to go like, yay, we we're we're going in uh, going in the right direction. Uh, well I think,
1: why- I mean, one one little point if I can make it. I mean the, the sure. Fed usually goes until they really break something. Correct. And, and and if you look at the regional banking sector, you know the, I guess the real question is and this is you know beyond the scope of the work i do have they broken it enough uh, i mean clear, clearly we see some cracks some things have broken um and you know it's we'll, we'll see and that, that 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 quick rate rise i think really threw some of the the smaller banks kind of on their heads in terms of how their books were right. positioned from a duration perspective
0: well uh... Yeah, I mean, look, there are hope that there's more on that uh, that, are, that are beyond the purview uh, of the show, right? I mean, in part of our banking regulation was designed in order for you to have about $250,000 per institution, per employer, right? It, the whole idea was to distribute the amount of money. And what we had in Silicon Valley Bank are giant companies that had all of their money in a bank, in an account that suddenly had to be insured because you lost everything above the 250000 Uh, Guarantee uh, or whatever, or 750, depending on how you break it per person. Anyway, uh, let me take you back to Spirit um, and the other companies and why there's continued uh, down uh, there, right? I mean, there was a sense that, okay, they reported they had a tough time, but why the continued uh, down in the stock from your standpoint?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's been a, a question we've gotten from some investors. And I think the, the real view is if you want to play something in commercial aerospace, there's other places to go that are less messy. Um, you know, One of the big questions we get today is, hey, you know what, the, the, the issue with the, the vertical fins on the 737s. And if you look at that and you try to figure out how much that actually is potentially worth in terms of a liability, the stock has probably lost far more market cap than that. Why does this make sense? Uh, and then I think the bigger question becomes then, Vago, it's, all right, well, if if you're not making money on 737s now, and you're not on wide bodies, um, either A350 or 787, um, and you know if you look at the quarter, pretty much across every sector was not good. You know, the question then becomes, when, when do you? And And Spirit has been identified as one of those names where there is this, you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow uh, and you can model it out. It looks really good on paper, but it, the rainbow keeps moving forward. And it, there's just not a lot of patience for that in the current market with the broader risk profile of uncertainty around a recession. You know, what's the Fed going to do? What's the U.S. government going to do? You know what I mean? So I, I think there is some shifting, Rick. If you're going to play commercial arrow, you know, you know, 9 reported. Uh, this past week and, and it crushed it and and that wasn't unexpected people expected him to and the stock reacted very well and i think right. that's just a demonstration of you know all right we're going to play the names that we we are just more comfortable with because of the broader risk profile in the market
0: uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the role a potential recession plays and the timing of it uh impacting uh the the presidential race right because depending on how you game this out you you actually could arrive at more negative economic news uh, right about the time when America's, Americans will be casting their ballots. Um, sash, uh, you know, a lot of overseas uh, concern, we have a tendency of thinking about a debt default. Uh, obviously in domestic terms, whether it's actually a global challenge. We've been discussing that over the last couple of weeks. European nations hold uh, a lot of debt as well. Again, how is this uh, uh, you know shaping sort of European uh, thinking? Uh, and and uh, what are the other drivers that are shaping investment or shape uh, investment in the defense and aerospace sector over the past week, right? Because we did hear Airbus and Boeing report uh, April uh, delivery numbers. So I'm sure that that, uh, you know, shapes, uh, shapes things as well. Kind of walk us through.
3: Okay. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the debt issue, first of all, I mean, I can, <laughs> I can categorically say we have had no incoming calls about this from our investment hmm. clients because our investment cards just cannot believe you would be this stupid. Um, uh, and therefore, it's just not- But, but I, wait, but wait, Sash, no, but, we no, can. No, no. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> um, you know, there's just a feeling, um, particularly in Europe, we've seen the self-harm that, uh, you know, the UK could, uh, did through, through Brexit. And there's a feeling of nobody else would do that again. Um, and that may well be wrong but it's been astonishing how, how little interest has been in this subject from uh, from investment clients. Governments clearly are a bit concerned because, uh, or indeed central banks for that matter, are, are concerned because they're actually holders of US treasuries. But I think even then, um, they don't really have a great deal of choice. It's a, it's a reserve, it's the reserve currency, or until recently it has been the reserve currency. You have to hold dollars, and therefore you have to hold treasuries, um, which is a very uncomfortable t- position to be in. Um uh and you know, I think they're just just going to tit it out I mean, there's very little point in governments telling um uh U.s legislators what to do. that would go down incredibly badly. but um, I- I've been very surprised at the degree to which this this whole issue has not had any traction among investors on on this side of the pond let me, uh, so let what me had... let me interrupt you, let me let me interrupt you briefly what did why did you
0: say until recently it was the reserve currency until recently?
3: because there has been there have been more uh pushes more moves to try to diversify the uh the reserve currencies I mean you know, the euro was was set up and is intended to become a reserve currency uh, and that that's an absolutely fundamental part of the of the belief in the euro uh, within the eurozone um now if you're not in europe not in the States um uh, you know there are China clearly wants the renminbi to become a reserve currency at some stage. Um, I think that's a that's a much longer term issue. But if you did have a debt default, probably shouldn't kid yourself that the renminbi won't become much more important in terms of countries' uh, currency portfolios because it will be. Um and, and as, so as, and so as,
0: right. and, and so from your standpoint, even if we
3: result in a
0: deal, the fact that this becomes a recurrent issue is actually increasing interest in creating or shifting and putting the euro in a position where it does become a reserve currency to mitigate the risk and then actually plays into China and Russia's hands to see whether or not an alternate financial mechanism can be sought apart from the dollar, right? Which
3: is what yeah, their drive is. I, yeah, no, I, I think it's right. Apart from Russia, I mean, I, Russia is such a special case. I'm not sure, you know, the Russians will accept the renminbi as a, as a reserve currency because that way they can trade with China. Um, but... Uh, I don't, you know, I don't think they benefit in terms of the ruble. Nobody would, would take rubles and hold them. Um, and in terms of timescale, very important. You know, the euro is becoming, albeit in a very, very slow way, a reserve currency now. The renminbi, the Chinese want it to be, it isn't yet. But the more damage you do to the dollar, the more likely that becomes. And it probably isn't led by Europe, but it may well be led by countries in Africa and Asia that are tied into the Belt and Road uh, project. Um, and uh, R-
0: R- Ron, you had your hand up, so I'm assuming it's on this point, so I'm going to let you dive in with Richard's patience uh, and uh, Sasha's forbearance. Go ahead. Well, I think that ultimately
1: when you look at back to the credit, default swaps, having you know the cost to um, cover. US debt about the same as the Chinese, I think that's that that says volumes towards you know you know movement and reserve currencies and so on and so forth and and the reality is bago right you know, the u.s had a downgrade on its debt last time even though uh our bills got paid for the very reason that you said that you know, this was used as a as a potential you know negotiating point uh and right. it, you know, on a go forward basis but continues to be used as a negotiating point it'll keep the credit default swap spreads on our debt higher than our friends across the Atlantic, and can maybe not quite at Chinese levels, but maybe pretty close. And if the de- default probabilities are similar between the U.S. and China, that just augurs for a stronger case for the remedy. Uh, in
0: in uh, indeed, um, Sash, uh, coming uh, back to you, um, what were some of the drivers and how uh, the group performed in Europe this last week?
3: Uh, so look, main I mean, main drivers were. Uh, the war and the state of the um uh the state of relations um and arms transfers to ukraine uh airbus and uh, on your side of the bond uh Boeing deliveries um and Hensolt was the last of the uh, European companies to uh to report numbers. Um of Hensolt, I would just say, you know, in passing, almost the most interesting thing that came out of that was the degree to which Hensolt, and this is the German Defense Electronics Company, um leonardo of italy has a 25% shareholding um as does the german government leonardo made some probably slightly unwise comments about hensold's results uh when they had their results a couple of weeks ago hensold management were clearly pissed there's no no two ways about it. I, I i can't soften the, the term any more than that uh, and they really hit out at, at leonardo and i do find the degree to which you have these two companies which are supposed to be in, you know, in collaboration. There is the strategic shareholding by Leonardo, but Hensalt is not prepared to be uh, subservient to Leonardo at all. And they clearly find at the very highest level comments made by Leonardo, somewhere between appropriate and just plain dumb. Um, and it's a, this is not a good basis for collaboration or cooperation. Let's be honest about it.
0: Uh, in uh, indeed, um, uh, well said. Um, Sat, uh, three, two, one. Richard, uh, anything you want to add to the broader economic discussion before we move on to some of the big headlines of the week and building into them?
2: No, I think uh, Ash and Rod did a great job as always.
0: <laughs> I now see the distinguished gentleman from New York sees the balance of his, of his time. Uh, uh, sorry, had to bring a little bit of Congress uh, to this conversation. Um, <laughs> Uh let's talk about the Boeing, uh, Germany's uh, order for CH-47s. Uh, obviously, that's something uh, that uh, Germany telegraphed last year. Um, now we have an, an order for 60 F-model aircraft, new build uh, airplanes for $8.5 billion. Uh, it's an order that was long coveted by Boeing and and something the company really did with methodical and uh, methodically pursue. There was a sense the Germans could go for the uh, CH-53, uh, given that it was a longtime operator of the airplane. Uh, and and certainly Sikorsky was hoping that the K-model uh, that's been adopted by the U.S. Marine Corps would also be bought uh, by Uh, uh, by the Germans. But that program has been also delayed. Richard, kind of walk us through what this order means, what it means for Boeing, uh, and also what it means for Sikorsky, especially in the wake of the uh, future long-range assault aircraft uh, loss, uh, given that that's, you know, given the company is still going to build Blackhawks for a long time, right? I mean, we saw a big order from the United States uh, military on that, about 186 airplanes, if I remember, just a couple of weeks ago. Walk us through what the CH-47 deal uh, means and means for the rotorcraft, the heavy rotorcraft marketplace worldwide. And Sash, I want to get your sense on this as well, because there are Eurocopter implications. Go ahead.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I think it's really, um, it, it's the, it's very interesting on multiple levels. You know, First of all, not to claim any special prescience, but I never really saw that the 53K had much of a chance because even though the Germans operated the G version of the 53, which was basically a D version uh, with G for Germany or maybe with D for Deutschland, I forget. Either way, that was a much different helicopter than the K model. And most notably, it was a lot smaller, a lot lighter, and uh, a lot less expensive. The K has become a $100 million machine, which the Marines need, love, want. It's good for 200. Will they ever export it? I, I doubt it. It's just too expensive. I mean, at the end of the day, the Germans decided they wanted 60 heavy lift helicopters. That was the number. Uh It would, it would have been a 2X multiple to get to the 53K relative to the 47. I, I just don't see how that was affordable. Now, On the affordability question, it's kind of telling that, you know, uh, it's been well well over a year since the Germans announced a massive ramp up in defense spending, uh, along with a 100 billion upfront euro uh, provision fund to make good shortfalls in their military. And it's taken them this long for something that's been in the pipeline forever. So it just goes to show that even though there has been this announcement of additional funding, it's taken forever for it to filter through the system. But at the end of the day, it's certainly good news for the 47 it's important to note the 47 line had been under pressure because the army's willing to wait another three four five years before it gets going with the block two program they keep putting that off only the special operations folks have purchased it in small numbers you know five years to eight there whatever else so this is good news for the 47 whereas the 53k ultimately gets going to be doing you know 15 18 per year for rather a long time for the marines that's that's just what's going to happen. There's no pressure on the line. So I think it probably mattered more for Boeing. Um, The broader market, you know, uh, obviously, there's only two players in the charismatic megafauna of the large outsized helicopter market. And even, you know, Airbus's presence, as I'm sure Sash will address, has been, if anything, shrinking with H 90 is sort of being, you know, left by the side of the road and walked away from by multiple clients and just a couple of days ago the UAE decided to cancel its H225 order for a dozen Super Pumas. Um so, you know, this is clearly asserting Boeing's dominance in this uh, limited but not uh, not not non-existent export niche. It's 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 pretty important. It's a pretty significant win. And of course, uh, it's good for you know, eight or $9 billion in revenue. That's not nothing.
0: And uh, I just want to point out to everybody, this is a Vertol product that went into service in 1962. uh, And there are some data-plated airplanes that served in Vietnam uh, with distinction that are still uh, in the US Army inventory. Just a quick word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Sash, uh, you have a word to add and then uh ron i'm going to c- uh, come to you uh in a moment
3: go ahead yeah i mean uh, d- just two very quick things i mean first of all actually I, i'm going to disagree with richard i think that that this competition and it's all requirement was sikorsky's and their, hence lockheed's to lose Um, but and, and i do think that they were a serious contender the problem is they were a serious contender a decade ago they were still a serious contender five years ago but Sikorsky has so focused on the Marine's requirement and so not focused on cost and price that they lost it because it, it was just nosebleed expensive, the, the, the 53K. And, um, uh, you know, that that's their fault and nobody else's. Uh, and that, whereas I think, you know, Chinook has been in general, I mean, it's still a very expensive airplane. You know, it, this is going to be well over 100 million euros, uh, an airplane as an export product. But... It, it, because it's had a much more, um, a much broader export base, it's had a much better uh, process in terms of developing uh, the products over the over the last, well, as you say, nearly 60 years. Um, it, it is better economically. It's a faster aircraft. Let's be honest. It's way faster than a than a 53K. Uh, and it's got very, very good um, under, underslung uh lift capabilities as well. So I you know I think it's I think the Germans have bought the wrong heli uh, sorry the right helicopter. What worries me is that I think this is another nail in the um in uh the nail of Eurocopter as a military helicopter producer. They would clearly have co-produced the 53K. They won't get a cent out of uh Boeing on this. Um and couple that with the problems you know as Richard quite rightly says with NH90 and even with, with Super Puma as well. Eurocopter is becoming a civil helicopter company by default. I don't think you can be a serious vertical lift company just as a civil helicopter company in the long term. You have to be able to bring technologies in from the from the military and other government requirements, um, and then you know cross fertilize a range of civil and um, military applications. And Eurocopter's only got half of that. You know, it's like an oct- octopus with half its legs cut off. It'll function for a while, but it's it's not going to end well.
0: Uh, interesting. Uh, Ron, uh, your sense on all of this and the market dynamic and, and what it means also for Sikorsky ultimately?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's clearly it's it's good for uh, Boeing. Um, you know what's it what's it mean for Sikorsky ultimately? I don't know. I mean there'll be other contracts down the road, right like you pointed out, the Chinook's been around for a really long time. Um, So these these helicopter contracts kind of, you know, come and go, it's a lumpy market. Um, You know, it would have been a nice thing for Sikorsky, uh, but they didn't get it. So it is what it is. (laughs)
0: philosophically said uh ron philosophically said uh richard what about the t7 uh, red hawk delay right i mean this program was supposed to be the first e program right uh all electronic uh series uh for uh, the u.s air force digital threads uh changing the way the air force uh does business and unfortunately the program uh has gotten itself into a little bit of hot water it was a one-year delay now it's a three-year delay uh what's what's the impact from your standpoint, right? Because this has a domino effect. That means that 1950s era T-38s or 1960s era T-38s now have to stay in service longer, right? And, and, and that causes a whole series of other challenges. What does this uh, tell us? Um, and what does this tell us at a time when, right, the US Navy is looking at a new training aircraft as well to succeed the T-45 goshawk? Uh, the new Navy training airplane does not uh, need to land on aircraft carriers, which is controversial for for some. Um, Anyway, walk us through what are the implications of of this uh, delay and whether or how it potentially reflects uh, on the efforts by Ted Colbert and his team at Boeing uh, Defense, Space, and Security to sort of get their arms wrapped around the problem and, and, and sort of move forward. Although I suspect some of the program's the seeds for its current troubles were laid well before his tenure. But give us give us your sense. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that's exactly right. The
2: seeds were laid before his tenure. You know, I mean, there was a certain uh, strategy with a certain degree of wisdom that you know you take the monster amount of cash flow coming from the commercial side and use it to subsidize money losing defense contract bids on the defense side, and uh, then unfortunately. That was translated to, oh, and you know, why do that when you can simply under resource and hope it works out <laughs> magically? So, you know, the KCX, of course, was one with basically a two billion dollar overbid that became, my God, what are we up to? Six or seven billion in cost overruns. Yeah, when you under resource things, of course, you it 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 keeps snowballing, as we all know. You know, you just pay even more down the road, much more down the road as you make good defaults and deficiencies and mistakes earlier in the development process. You might be seeing that with Q7, which is almost kind of a reducto ad absurdum. You know, it was generally viewed as a $16 billion program. Uh, I think DOD said should cost is like 14 or something like that, uh, you know, before profit, whatever. And then ultimately Boeing won it with a 9.7, I believe, bid. So basically that was one of those, you know, we're going to punch ourselves in the face and call it a strategy moments. and uh, inevitably, probably resource under-resourced too. So showing up in major delays, showing up probably with a lot more. You know, it's the only defense contract win in I think in our career, our careers that was accompanied with an out of the box write-off. Like, hooray, we won, and we'll start by writing off half a billion dollars or something like that. So plenty more pain to come. Um, is it? I'd love to say, as, as the resident Luddite, I would love to say that this is a comment on the electronic philosophy, model-based simulations, engineering, and God knows I've been a doubter of that. But I, I can't. I mean, it, it probably is, but it's just not proven at this point because, you know, <laughs> there's so much else going on in terms of underbidding and underresourcing and, and, and whatever else. That it's too early to say that this has anything to do with overblown expectations. Having said that, I'm I'm quite positive that with the you know in with the submission of a very aggressive bid, there was probably a fair degree of don't worry, it'll all be better with MBSE sort of philosophy behind it. But again, unproven, um, you know. And of course, this brings to mind you know, there's this very big fast trainer requirement in the Air Force and Navy. We've heard talk of an interim buy by the Air Force, and we've talk, heard talk of the need to accelerate a goshawk replacement for the Navy and perhaps an interim buy for them, too. But not much going on there. Maybe that'll provoke that. And with possibilities for you know the M346 or the T-50 from Korea... Uh, which, of course, at one point was offered with Lockheed Martin help. That's certainly a possibility because I think at one point, I think the T-38 was declared just ridiculously prohibitive to operate by the end of this decade, which is increasingly looking like it'll have to be in service to the tune of hundreds of aircraft by the end of this decade. How that's going to get resolved, either from a budgeting standpoint or a who's liable standpoint or a substitute product standpoint, there's so much to discover in the coming years.
0: Ron, anything you want to add to, to that before we uh, when I turn to Sash and his uh, sort of take on uh, Britain's profile and courage and how Ryan Metal is going to be helping uh, Ukraine as this uh, offensive uh, shows up? Go ahead.
1: Nope, I think uh, my colleague Richard covered it. Yes, Precisely. Brother
0: brother Richard, as Adam Polarski uh, would, so, uh, would so elegantly uh, say. By the way, we've got to have Adam uh, join us uh, on the show uh, soon. Um, just a quick word to our audience to check out our many weekly podcasts, Canvas Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace Company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace, uh, that I co host with our very own JJ Gertler. Um, Sash, uh, absolute profile in courage on the part of the United Kingdom, uh, deciding to send its most uh, potent conventional weapons system, the Storm Shadow, which is jointly uh joint product, uh, project with France, uh, to Ukraine. How does that change uh, what's to come? This is. Uh, a weapon uh, with a very large uh, and very powerful uh, warhead, a 900-pound warhead, uh, as well as a 350-mile range and um, precision that's measured in inches, uh, actually. It's one of the world's most precise weapons. Um, But there are not that many of them in inventory, right? So how does this change the battle? And what do France and the United Kingdom have to do to bolster their own stockpiles uh in this sort of higher end weapon and one that's not artificially capped to 350 miles of range right uh because that was uh something that the weapons could have been longer range but the decision was made not to make it longer range at the time of um you know mtcr and a whole whole bunch of uh issues uh, that were governing folks what, what's your what's your sense on the impact on the war and what the companies what the nations have to do to rebuild their inventories
3: I think, depending on the number of rounds that we supply to Ukraine, this is a game changer. This is a, you know, this is up there. Uh, if you look at the, the weapons that have changed the shape of this war, Patriot, Patriot change has changed the shape of this war because it has given the Ukrainians uh, an anti-ballistic missile capability that they just were not going to get with their S 300s Um and it's given them a, you know, a far greater degree of security over, uh, over Kiev than, than than they had before. Leopard 2 because it was uh, the tank, because it was unbelievably political and that really sort of broke the, the logjam of German supplies. This is, as you say, and a phenomenally capable weapon. Um, it is 350 miles, yeah, at least. Um, accuracy, astonishing. The warhead is incredibly effective against very, very, very hardened targets. Look, let's, let's not beat around the bush. The, the Kerch Bridge is... um, When the Ukrainians get enough of these and decide to use them, the Kerch Bridge, which is that big bridge that Vladimir Putin built from Russia to Crimea, that bridge is dead, because this is the weapon that will take out the supports to that bridge and drop it in a way that it can't be repaired. So this isn't an Atakums type type weapon. It is a massive escalation from that. And uh, you know, I think the Ukrainians will use it very, very well. I don't know how many w- we're giving them. No, Nobody except the certain people in the UK government do. But I think they'll be told this is what you can have. You know, use them as, as well as you can. Um, at it, you know, as an extreme, it starts to threaten uh, sites inside uh, Russia, which are so far beyond what the Russians have been Uh, used to before I mean that is a potential escalation and I think that's the message the UK is going to try to send so let's zoom out a bit a couple of points to make first of all the UK could not have sent these missiles and there's a suggestion that that they the Ukrainians already have them but we couldn't have sent these missiles without asking the French for permission because as you rightly point out co-developed with France it was derived from the Matra Apache uh, cruise missile um, jointly produced with with the French and therefore they would have had a um uh some uh some degree of uh, end user license on them so you know kudos to the french for, for approving these um i think it makes the the call for ATACMS uh or you know a, a longer range version of mlrs less urgent for the ukrainians because this is the, the long range um very very accurate point uh pointed uh targets capability. From the UK's point of view, we bought about 700 of these uh, originally. It's a remarkably old weapon. We first used this in the first Gulf War. Uh, We fired, I think, 13 and had to account for every single one. It was that sensitive. We've probably fired about 200 overall, so stockpile of 500. Perhaps we've given them uh, 20, perhaps we've given them 50. Um, It's due to be replaced by a uh, Franco-British programme, the Future Cruise Anti-Ship uh, weapon um, which is designed to combine a an air launched cruise missile and a sea-launched uh strike weapon. I think that as we st- and uh the out of service date for uh, uh, for Storm Shadow was planned to be end of the 2020s possibly 2030 if you're lucky. So I think what we're doing is we're saying look it's fired. uh what better thing to do than to give them people who will cherish them and use them well um, because otherwise we won't. We you know, we can't fire off that many in this time. Uh, it will, I think, accelerate the spending and the focus on future cruise anti-ship uh, weapon, which from the point of view of Franco-British relations is a really good thing. It means actually we'll be collaborating on a programme of national importance to both com- countries. Um, and I think, you know, I have no doubt at all that MBDA on both sides of the channel will come up with an absolutely fantastic uh, successor cruise missile.
0: Um, and let me ask you about Rheinmetall's uh, partnership with uh Ukraine state owned Ukroboronprom uh, um their strategic uh, agreement on uh, you know for its strategic cooperation in the main but I believe at first it uh, looks at ground vehicle technology um Rheinmetall has been one of the most exciting companies to watch in this process every other day there's an announcement for ammunition for another european country um right I, and i can understand how some countries that have domestic sources of supply <laughs> want to sort of keep quiet the fact that they have to rely on germans uh and indeed koreans uh to to refill their stocks uh, even if their own factories are running overtime what does this new agreement uh
3: mean in the broad broad sweep i think this is um and I don't mean to downplay it in any way, but I think this is more of the same. This is part of the whole ring swap agreement process that uh, Germany has been involved in of um, providing, uh, supplying armored vehicles direct to Ukraine, but also supplying armored vehicles to other European countries who then supply Ukraine. Um, it, but it was all, you know, one, once Germany is supplying Mardas, Gepards, Leopard Ones, Leopard Twos, and approving the supply of Leopard Twos from other countries as well, Ukraine is going to have a big. Uh, stock of German built weapons, which they don't naturally have the ability to maintain, upgrade, repair, so forth. And uh, Rheinmetall has sort of, I think, been very entrepreneurial in sort of leaping into this, um, uh, leaping into this requirement. Um, Chief Executive Armin Papaga has made it very clear that, you know, what he would love to do is to get to a stage where UK boron from. Uh, uh, can actually produce directly the Panther um, uh, tank, which is Rheinmetall's um, option for, for a next-generation main main battle tank. And the problem for UK uh, baron prom is that it, it is very much set up on Soviet lines to deal with Soviet equipment. So it needs this injection of Western technology know-how uh, to be able to maintain, in the first instance, Western equipment, but then ultimately to be able to co-produce. And... You know, Ryan has, has talked in the past about how Ukraine is potentially a market for two to 300 new main battle tanks. Um, Panther is designed to be cheaper than Leopard 2 by a factor of at least 15 percent and possibly as much as 25 percent. Uh, and this is the sort of the first stage to that. I suspect over time there will also be collaborate or collaborational technology sharing on artillery ammunition production as well um, so that as Ukraine retools from 152 millimeter, the Russian calibre, to 155 millimeter, the, the NATO calibre, um, they'll be able to produce shells at to Ryan Mattel's, uh specifications and quality. So it's, it's a bit, you know, this is a, a big move towards bringing uh, u- the Ukrainian defence industry into the Western orbit, from which it, you you know, won't be able to uh, it won't be able to back out from that. It's a it's a step right. change, or it's a so it's a it's a, a, a one way uh, process. This. Um, and, you know, making it much more, um, uh, you know, much more capable of uh, operating and maintaining modern equipment.
0: Um, We're going to,
3: we're running out of time, and we're going to go
0: into a little bit of lightning round on the net jets, uh, as well as uh, the Turkish order and air travel, but give us sort of a 30 cent, 30 second take on uh, Russia's, uh, right, it's a, it's, it's a kilometer, or so of a pullback at the time that we're recording this of Russian forces. Wagner has left the room. Um, it's not abundantly clear to see how big of a dynamic that is. But anyway, what's your sense on sort of where we are? Uh, Ukrainian uh, President Volodymyr uh, Zelensky telling the BBC uh, we're, we're not quite ready for the offensive, because we're waiting on more uh, equipment. I think the ground is still pretty soft as well, which is another challenge. What what do you see the withdrawal from Russia, uh, the withdrawal of Russian forces, whether Wagner uh, or the standard uniform military and what it means for where we are? Because there are some folks who are actually drawing some pretty powerful conclusions about Russia's military competence
3: at this point. I think that Wagner group withdrawing or th- even threatening to withdraw from Bakhmut was very much part of um uh you know the company and its president um playing Russian internal politics. Um and uh you know, clearly the relationship between Wagner group and the Russian military is utterly toxic. Um his relationship Prigozhin's relationship with Putin is really not very good either. Um and he's setting himself up to be a successor or a kingmaker or something else. But I think the fact that, um, as the Russian forces, you know, rejigged the uh, the front line, they proved to be so incredibly vulnerable to a fairly small scale Ukrainian counterattack. Uh, I mean, you know, not not to disparage it, but this was not the big one. This was basically probing counterattacks to see what was there and see how it worked. And Russian, you know, some Russian forces cracked and broke, uh, broke. and fascinating that all the high ground uh, to one side of Bakhmut, which is absolutely the commanding territory there and has meant that it's been very difficult for Ukraine to reinforce uh, Bakhmut because they're under direct fire from there. They, they lost that in a period of about uh, about 48 hours. Um, so Russian morale in some cases, I, we've got to be careful not to generalise, but Russian morale in some cases is lousy. Russian capabilities in some cases and their ability to do a reinforcement in place, which is a complex military operation in any case, is very, very poor indeed. Um, does this mean this is where the, the offensive will come from? Almost certainly not. I think if I were Ukraine, I would want to be putting pressure on as many different points uh, along the front to make sure that Russia is thoroughly confused by the time they do decide uh, to commit. Um, but it's you know it's very very satisfying to see the um, you know the Ukrainians being able to mount a successful probing counterattack and it be that successful. Let's not get carried away quite yet. But you know it's a it's a tremendous start and a lovely end to last week.
0: Um, we 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 have to count our blessings where uh, we have them. Um, okay, a uh, bit of a lightning round, uh, everybody. Um, Ron, uh, why don't you start us off? Right, you guys noted a week over week improvement on global uh, air travel. Uh, Airbus and Boeing uh, has uh, have posted their April delivery numbers, and there are some interesting indicators in there. Uh, obviously, seven thirty seven still being a problem, as you mentioned at the top of the show. Um, and we also have some two sort of gigantic. Uh, deals right. NetJet did turn to Embraer, uh, for uh, aircraft, and then Turkish Airlines wants, uh, you know, 800 new jetliners, uh, the the latest airline to suffer from gigantism. Uh, we saw that happen with the uh, Indian uh, air carriers, and some questions about whether or not there's actually that much demand and and whether or not these airlines are the right ways uh, to sort of do it. Give us, give us your sense. And then we'll Richard want to get your sense and then sash uh, yours, but we're in lightning round mode. Go ahead, Ron, start. Okay, so on. in light of
1: time, I'll start with Embraer. And then we can hand it off to Richard on uh, the Turkish one. Um, there was a gigantic deal. I mean, if it, if it fully happens, right. So it's $5 billion worth of, uh of, uh, uh, the Prater 500. The Prater 500 um, is nominally a 20 million dollar or so aircraft. So five billion dollars worth of those airplanes is a lot of those airplanes. Um, and in the context of Embraer, that's a that's a gigantic deal. Um, I think it's actually larger than Embraer's current market cap. Um, so that that you know just to put that all in context. Um, having NetJets as a customer, you know, has positives and negatives. Um, they tend to take airplanes, but they also tend to negotiate. Um, good deals, right? Because they buy them in large numbers. Um, the sales of the Prater were okay, but uh, not awesome. So this is a, uh, a a vote of confidence in that in that platform and a real you know boost to uh, Embraer's backlog. And, and the way I would think about this, if you think back to the days of the fifty seed RJ's, this is kind of like somebody coming in and buying you know five billion dollars worth of RJ's. So it's a it's a really big deal. Right. Um, so and, we'll see and for those
0: people who don't know, the Prater uh, is the updated version of uh, the Legacy, and it's about a twelve-passenger, three-thousand-mile range uh, airplane.
1: And it's for its class, it's it's an all-fly-by-wire airplane. So it's what really um, you know it makes it different than m- many of its competitors. It's just a true fly-by-wire airplane in that price category. So um, and some folks have said it's maybe too much airplane for the money. I don't even know how that's possible, but. Um, you get a lot of airplane for the buck, so um, it's um, you know, good for Ember, good for you know, good for everybody involved with it. Um, but that, you know, it's a it's a it's a monster deal.
0: There was a big obrigado from San Jose yeah. dos Campos uh, yeah. going to uh, <laughs> to obrigado with a lot of O's in the end and a bunch of exclamation points. That's right, yeah. exactly, exactly. Uh, and 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 kudos uh, kudos to the company uh, because it is an extraordinary airplane company. Uh, on on all counts, uh, So we wish them well on that. Um, uh, Richard, do you want to take us away on uh, Turkish uh, and the prospects that they're actually going to build by 800 new long range and 800 jetliners of all kind? Yeah. What do you
2: say? I mean, 2008 called, they want their airline strategy back. You know, the idea of creating (laughs) a super connector and the greater uh, sort of uh, Gulf and Gulf North <laughs> region, it worked great, and you know until it stopped working quite so well. You know that's why you had tremendous growth with Qatar, Etihad, and uh, and of course most of all Emirates, um, and now Turkish, which you know it has perhaps even better, certainly better O and D traffic, origin traffic than those other guys. Wants in on the game, but the other guys kind of got there first, and meanwhile everybody is emphasizing more point-to-point, India, even India's back in action. So I'm sure a lot of people are going to see this as evidence, ah, the wide body market is back, when in reality it's just scrambling to be double-counted, you know, just cannibalization and whatever else. But perhaps most of all, the timing is incredibly suspicious. You know, the Erdogan government's been rolling out every homegrown concept in the world of aircraft at the same time they seem to have this we're great because we're giving you aerospace glory the con national fighter a helicopter lots of drones lots of everything we will make you great and now airline greatness too the, the the timing is just a little bit coincidental a couple days before the election so uh, i'm extremely suspicious that this is wait a, a minute you think you? this could
0: be electoral politics
2: Oh, I know it's a bit of a stretch, but I'm just
0: you, <laughs> a, cynic, cynical, <laughs> you know, Washingtonian. You,
2: I, I guess maybe I've been in this town for too long, but I, I just can't help but, uh, but smell something unpleasant. And you know, it's it's going to be it's going to be one of those things. If Erdogan gets in again, very bad for democracy, very bad for the West, very bad for humans in general, perhaps, but really good for aviation and aerospace. Uh, so, <laughs> a little bit torn here: uh, humans first, aircraft. Uh, on the other hand, uh, well, I guess we'll know a lot more by Monday,
0: won't we? Uh, we will know a lot more. but Well, no, we sort of won't, right? We know it, it'll be the two who move ahead. And then there's the runoff, which I think is going to be in, in uh, January. Um, but, Sash, we're wrapping up real quick. Uh, your sense you wanted to weigh in on Turkish briefly before we part.
3: Yeah, and I look on a ten year view, I'd be a buyer of Turkish and I'd be a seller of all the Gulf Airlines. Turkey has got has got two things uh in it in its favor. It has got a massive home population, 85 million Turks and still growing. That's more than the combined population of all of the uh the Gulf mega carriers uh states, uh, even including Saudi. Um Turkey is bigger than the lot of them combined. So there are just they, they, there are more people who naturally want to fly to and from Turkey than there are who want to fly to and from the Gulf. It's also it's a really good place for a hub, particularly given the um, uh, constraints on uh, flying uh, around Ukraine and and over Russia at the moment. Um, I I agree there's double counting, you know, not all of the wide bodies for the Gulf carriers and for Turkey will get delivered. But I just think Turkey is in the right place and it's got the, the natural advantages of a home market. The Gulf carriers ultimately will become another generation of flyover states.
0: Uh, And of course you have all the rich antiquities, uh, you know, the ancient, uh, you know, uh, both um, Greek ruins, uh Armenian ruins, uh, Hittite, you know, I mean, right. I mean, the rich archaeological history in that piece of uh, real estate. Ron, uh, really quickly, you can weigh in on this, uh, if you want to on the Turkish stuff, but really quickly walk us through uh, Virgin uh, Galactic and Rocket Lab also recorded in what is kind of a very robust uh, sector, things not as positive for Virgin as they are Rocket Lab really quickly walk us through uh, and anybody else on space that reported that you think uh, deserves some attention and another word, check out uh, the downlink with Laura Winter because she once a month takes a deep dive on the finances uh, and on the business news from the space sector. Go ahead, Ron, wrap us up for the week.
1: Yeah, Rocket Lab reported a, a good quarter from the point of view that you know revenues were ahead of four. I think most people thought they would be and uh, so were their margins. Um, they're on a trajectory to become, you know, free cash flow positive. You, you can kind of see that happening, um, which is a good thing in a sector where we haven't seen that for for many companies. Um, they're the most successful uh, publicly traded private launch company, uh, and they are the only one in 2023 that's actually put anything in orbit. Uh, so, in a market where one was expecting a lot of these companies to happen. Not many did, right? So if right. you go back two, three years ago, we were looking, it was supposed to be all these different launch companies and really nobody had. It just, you have, you have Rocket Lab at the moment and you have some other folks still working on things and working on engines and so on and so forth. But uh, so anyway, their, their quarter was uh, better than what most folks were looking for. And then on uh, Virgin Galactic, they burned up a lot of cash. And in, you know, in the current environment, we're, you know, raising capital and, and. Uh, things of the such are, are more difficult and most equity analysts now are forced to be fixed income analysts, meaning instead of just looking at the income statement, everybody's focused on the balance sheet and, uh, you know, how much capital you have. Uh, the current environment is not very forgiving to cash burn and so on and so forth. Now, to be clear, they have good reasons for it and there's, you know, they're, you know, they're trying to build out a fleet and do all kinds of things, but um, so it's, you know, you can say it's quote unquote excusable. However, Um, having a large cash burn in the current environment, folks don't look friendly upon that. Uh,
0: And before we go, um, I just realized we haven't talked about Ryanair. Sash uh, takes this because you know the airline better than anybody else. Uh, 300 uh, 737s. What's it mean?
3: Yeah, look, this is an, I mean, Ryanair orders big. They try to order um, at the bottom of a cycle. Uh, Ryanair's um, chief executive, Michael O'Leary, is famous for a number of things. He has a particularly, um, uh, sharp tongue, but he, you know, he, he regards himself as being a very, very strong negotiator. What was interesting about this, I mean, first of all, let's be clear, Ryanair orders 737 MAXs is a dog bites man story. Ryanair was <laughs> never going to order anything else. Um, but what is significant is that Ryanair has been trying to order these aircraft, or Boeing has been trying to sell them to Ryanair for certainly since since the pandemic, possibly even before the pandemic. Right. No we were talking we were talking about it
0: throughout the pandemic, actually, about yeah, whether he yeah. was and he wasn't. And he was very supportive of Boeing at a time when a lot of people weren't uh, in the yeah. darkest days after the crash. Crashes. And he,
3: was supportive. he was supportive of Boeing, but he wasn't supportive enough to order the aircraft because he thought he'd get a, a cheaper deal. And uh, Michael O'Leary had the, the honesty, actually, to say, we didn't get the price we wanted. You know, We didn't get such a good deal. Um, so what does this tell us? Um, it tells us that the uh, manufacturers are so capacity or supply constrained at the moment. Airlines are having to fight to get slots, and hence airlines are uh, having to pay up. So pricing relatively is pretty good. Um, and you know this was a this was a, a mild positive for Boeing. You'd expect it to be more. Three hundred Maxes. I mean, a it's very good for the Max program. B that's a big order by any any standards. But I think that investors are looking so closely at the moment at not at the book to build, which is how these stocks normally trade, but actually at whether, as we've talked about a lot, Boeing and Airbus can get aircraft out of the door, and there's a lot more doubt about that, that it's sort of getting over people's heads at the moment, and they'll come back and look at it in six, nine months when uh, the supply chain problems have uh, have hopefully eased up and the production ramps look more credible. At the moment, they don't.
0: And uh r- really quickly, uh Ron and Richard, thanks for being patient. Uh Germany's three billion dollar uh additional arms package for Ukraine. Any highlights of that, right? Germany facing a lot of criticism for not having moved as quickly as it should have. Um, does this dispel those doubts that Germany's been moving too slowly?
3: I think like it doesn't dispel those doubts because Germany always seems to make things difficult for itself in this but actually, it's a, it's a pretty nice package. It's 30 more Leopard 2 tanks, at least I think they're Leopard 2s. That's, you know, the Ukrainians will be happy with that. That's pretty much equipped another tank regiment. Some more uh, armored personnel carriers. Um, the RST air defense system is a very, very capable air defense system. It's not one that a lot of people have heard about, but it uses a, uh, a ground launch variant of the uh, highly maneuverable uh, RST air-to-air missile. And it's got a very good radar package. Uh, with it. That uh, has already been deployed, uh, previous versions of that um, around Kiev. I think that's probably the thing that's of most value uh, militarily. Um, But, you know, a lot of other armoured vehicles and and clearly tons and tons of ammunition. And what Ukraine needs all the time is more ammunition. So, I, you know, I think it's a very, very, it's a very big package. It's a, you know, it's a very well-balanced package at the moment. I think this will, you know, the Ukrainians will make good use of it.
0: Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Uh, hope everybody has uh, a great week and look forward to having you back on again uh, next week. Thanks so very much for joining and uh, joining us and a very happy uh, Mother's Day to our entire audience. Yeah, great to be here, Bargo. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us as always, Vargo. Yeah,
2: enjoyed it a lot. Thanks, Bargo.
0: And uh, hope everybody has a great weekend and look forward to having you back on the show. Tomorrow, uh, for our week ahead segment, a special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship. And over, I hope everybody has a great uh, holiday today. All the best. Cheers. Bye bye.